Good morning, church. The scripture reading for today is from Acts chapter 9, verse 19 to 31. And this is the word of the Lord. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Having issues again with the other mic, so I'm going to use this one. Um, before I get into the passage for today, let me introduce a few, uh, a few people who are joining us for the first time. I'd like to welcome... Uh, Sister Dinah O, oh, who's uh, joining us for the first time. Dinah, where are you sitting? Just raise your hand for us over here. Let's give Dinah a warm welcome. Glad you can join us today. And I also met um, Rob. Rob, uh, I don't have his last name, but where are you sitting, Rob? Oh, there you go. Sorry. Let's give Rob a warm welcome as well. And I met, uh, I did meet. Thomas, who's sitting right behind Rob, so let's give Tom also a welcome. All right, grateful that we get to have uh, visitors uh, even during this difficult season. So, uh, last time we were in the book of Acts, we learned about the dramatic conversion of Saul, okay, for those of you who don't know Saul, he's the same guy as Paul, okay? So Saul of Tarsus becomes later known to be the Apostle Paul. But we, we learned of this dramatic conversion he experienced on the road to Damascus. But, you know, because the, the author of Acts, right, who's Luke, by the way, if you didn't know, uh, author Luke, he moves <clears throat> this story along very quickly, it seems. You know, he goes from Saul's conversion to the Apostle Paul's first missionary journey in just a span of a few chapters. And so if you're reading through the book of Acts, it may, you may have the impression that, man, this, these things happen just back to back, you know, boom, 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 right away. But <clears throat> that's actually not what happens, right? That, that's far from the truth. The truth is that in order for Saul 
to become the Apostle Paul, God had to prepare him over the course of many years. Right? And, and that could be easily overlooked if you're just kind of glancing through Acts. Okay? And the fact that um, Paul had to go through many years of waiting and training is actually important for us to remember because you know, when we consider how the church flourished in an ancient Roman world that was very antagonistic to the Christian faith, you know, yes, we can ultimately say it was God. It was all God who did it, right? It was God who made it all possible. But I think it's helpful for us to pause occasionally and just think that these details were, you know, given. They matter as well. They matter greatly because a more detailed picture shows us that the church grew and multiplied in the midst of all the persecution that was taking place through God's faithful servants, right? It was through people that God had raised up and used uh, to advance and expand his, his kingdom and, and to grow the church. In other words, yes, God is the one who builds and multiplies his church. We can say amen to that. But also, we have to affirm the fact that he uses people as the means to accomplish the work of building, right? And that was true in Paul's day. And it's still true in our day as well. And so as you listen to the message this morning, I'd like for you to be encouraged, right, to know that nothing, truly nothing can stop God from building his church. At the same time, let's be humbled. Let's also be thankful to know that God has given us a role to play in all of this. He is using us to accomplish his mission and purpose. God does not just grow his church. He uses people to do it. And so with that as the big idea, uh, here's how the sermon will be delivered. I have a three-part outline. Uh, part one, the growth of Saul. So I want to kind of zoom in on uh, just the process that Saul had to, to go through, right, to eventually become the Apostle Paul. And part two, uh, I'm going to call it the Barnabas effect, okay, the Barnabas effect. Barnabas actually plays a key role in shaping who Saul will be later on. And also part three, uh, I'll be briefly uh, going through this part. We'll just call it the multiplying church, okay? The growth of Saul, the Barnabas effect, and the multiplying church. So let's look at Part one together, the growth of Saul. The passage begins like this. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. Okay? And of course, because on the road to Damascus, he, he encountered Jesus, and then his life completely flipped upside down. Uh, he becomes a follower of Christ, and now he finds himself in Damascus trying to recover from this, you know, dramatic event. And, uh, but then it says in verse 20, immediately... He proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, Jesus is the Son of God. And so people are observing what Paul is doing here, this former persecutor of the church, and they're like amazed, right? They said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? So it's like just a few days ago, Saul was this enemy, this great enemy of the church, traveling incredibly long distances to 
literally persecute Christians, but now we see him passionately proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues, declaring that Jesus indeed is the Son of God. So he does a 180 in terms of his message. But notice, and I thought this would be just good practical wisdom right, for us to have, notice that his basic personality is the same. Right? He is the same determined, highly driven, disciplined man with a high work ethic. Right? Those basic traits have not changed in him. I think this is helpful to, to keep in mind, right, so that we don't have, we don't place unrealistic expectations upon ourselves or upon others. And it's like when you meet Jesus, right, there are many things that will change about you, right? You know, your, your core beliefs about who Jesus is, right, what truth is, your values, your worldview will absolutely change because, you know, your source of authority changes from this self, your, your, I guess, your own reason to God's very own word. So everything does shift and change in that sense. But you know what? Some things about who you are are never meant to change. Right? You know, before I became a Christian... This will probably not surprise any of you. I, I was a very quiet person, you know. And I, I love to spend time by myself, right? Well, guess what? After I became a Christian, I'm still the quiet man I used to be, right? I only talk when I'm asked to talk, okay? Did I volunteer to go to all those functions coming up, you know? Do I really want to speak at all these multiple No. I, I really don't, you know. I only go because I was asked to go. That, that's the promise I made to the Lord, you know. If, if anyone calls me to speak, I'll go speak, unless there's a conflict, obviously. But, you know, that's my nature. I'm a quiet guy. I don't like to talk. And, you know, I, I still love spending time alone. I love to play chess by myself. Okay? Well, actually, I'm playing with other people online. I don't see them, though, right? So... It feels like I'm by myself. By the way, if anyone, any of you want to play chess with me, you know, I, I'm, invitation's out there. <clears throat> so, look, if you have certain personality traits that are unique to you and, and you know deep down that's just part of who you are, you don't have to try to change those things. Right? Instead, you're to humbly offer them to the Lord and, and ask the Lord to use who you are to bless the larger body of Christ, okay? But that takes discernment, too, because some, some parts of you, yeah, you should change, okay? But I'm talking about, right, the things that, that really um, are, are part of just your, your nature, your personality, okay? That, uh, things that the Holy Spirit is not meant to touch. As, as God's people, let's affirm the fact that we are, called to be united in our core beliefs surrounding who Jesus is. But let's also affirm the fact that it's okay to remain very different from each other okay, in regards to our personalities, our energy levels, our giftedness, etc., etc. Let's be free to serve the Lord according to how he has gifted us. Right? Consider that just 
practical wisdom, right? Now, the author Luke here continues to write in verse 22 with, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the city wall, lowering him in a basket. It's a very dramatic thing that's happening here. And then after this, after he's lowered, he, he makes an escape. He, goes, he actually ends up going to Jerusalem to meet with the other apostles. Okay? Now, I want to pause here for a moment because I think there's an important point to be made here. You know, if we just go by what Luke writes in our passage today, we have actually no way of knowing how much time Saul or Paul spent in Damascus before heading over to Jerusalem, right? Because the only time marker we're given here is in verse 23, where we read, when many days had passed. And so many days had passed can mean what, 10 days, 20 days? Who knows how many days? Luke only says when many days had passed. So because I was responsible for doing like, you know, the background research here and and, uh, what's going on, let me give you a more precise timeline, okay? Here's, Here's how it went. After Saul was converted on the road to Damascus, Okay, he, he did spend some time in Damascus, as we read here, but he also spent a considerable amount of time in Arabia prior to going to Jerusalem, right? And, and Luke does not mention that part. He doesn't mention Arabia. And we know that he was in Arabia because Paul actually, in his letter to the Galatian church, mentions that he actually gives us the details of his itinerary. Uh, Let me read a portion of that. Galatians chapter 1 talks about how he was uh, set apart before he was born. God called me by his grace. He was pleased to reveal his son to me. And then it says in verse 17 of chapter 1, I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I, I instead went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus before going to Jerusalem. That's his point. And then in verse 18, to kind of sum up his, his stay in the Damascus, Arabia region, he said, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to meet Peter and, and remain there within 15 days. And so in your mind, you can think of this sort of journey. He was on the road to Damascus. He met Jesus. So he finds himself in Damascus for however many days. And then, and then he goes to Arabia, Okay. And then he comes back to Damascus, and then from Damascus he makes an escape, and then he goes to Jerusalem. That was the path he took. So think of it this way. The time Saul spent in Arabia, that can go in between verses 21 and verse 22 of our passage today. Right? That's where it would fit the best. And so right before, if you can open up your, I don't know, your digital Bibles or whatnot, uh, do anybody, anyone carry still a Bible? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for being a real Bible. Um, so right before verse 22, just think, Saul spent a significant amount of time in Arabia 
and then return to Damascus. And then read verse 22. And then it says, but Saul increased all the more in strength. That doesn't mean he was like working out hard physically in Arabia, okay? It means that he, he gained spiritual strength and the ability to communicate the gospel more effectively. And he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Okay, so it's worth pausing there and asking, so what, what exactly was Paul doing in Arabia? Good question to ask. Now, there's virtual agreement among scholars here that, that God used Saul's time in Arabia, roughly, let's say, three years or so, to further prepare and equip him for the ministry ahead. And so you can think of Arabia as a kind of a training ground, right? as Paul was, was preaching Christ to the Gentiles in that region, including Gentile kings. And we know this because in 2 Corinthians 11, he mentions that King Aretas, who ruled in Arabia during that time, wanted him dead. Why would the king want him dead? Well, it's probably because he was preaching an offensive message to his ears, right? It's probably because he was preaching the gospel, and, and that was an offensive message to, to the king. And so the king wanted him dead, and that's likely the reason why he was driven back to Damascus, and from there had to you know, plot, plot a way to escape. He was a wanted man, and so he had to go through a city wall, through a little window, being lowered through a, in a basket, and then, and then uh, make the escape. That, that's that's, what, that's <laughs> what his life was like as a young Christian. I mean, he was an older man, but he was a, essentially a, a newborn Christian. You know, he, he used to live in such comfort as a powerful Jewish elite, but now he's living like a lowly refugee. That's what he is. And, and these are the hardships he had to endure because God was training him up to be a leader, not just any leader, but an apostle, the leader of leaders in the church. He had to go through some very hard times. You know, when speaking of church leaders, God word says, God's word says this, and I, I was, as I was meditating upon this passage, uh, I, I was reminded of, of how we establish our own leaders here in Cornerstone. And, and you know, the letters of Timothy uh, makes it very clear that church leaders, it says, he must not be a recent convert. He must not be a recent convert. And I personally believe that that principle of he must not be a recent convert is being played out here in this story. Because God wasn't going to violate his own principles right? and have Saul officially become an apostle right after his conversion. That would make no sense. You can't have a newborn Christian as all of a sudden the leader of leaders in the church. No. He was going to have Saul go through some incredibly rigorous and lengthy training, right? And doesn't that make sense? Because growth, any kind of growth, but especially spiritual growth and character growth, it takes time because it's a product of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. It takes time. Just like it takes a little seed to grow and become a fruit tree, it takes time for God's Word to be planted in your soul and to produce character in your life. And so time is important. Time is always 
an important factor that God uses to grow us as his people, as well as trials and hardships. What better tool is there than trials and hardships to hone one's character? And these are the things God uses here. You know, most seminary, uh, seminaries rather require at least three years of training for pastors. God had me do four years, okay? <laughs> I had my personal reasons for that, but, you know, it was probably because I had too many character flaws that God wanted me to be trained another year, okay? That's one way to look at it. But here, in, in Paul's case, you would think that after three years of incredibly rigorous training that he is now ready to go on the missionary journeys that he became known for. You would think, but no, that's not the case even. <laughs> right, Luke doesn't make this clear, but, but Paul had to wait another 10 years before going on his first missionary journey. Right? Did you know that? I didn't, I, I'm, I'm sure I, I knew that before. I just forgot about it. I was like, what, 10 years? So three years and another 10? Wow, it's a lot of time of waiting. You know, I mean, one of his primary callings was to be an apostle to the Gentiles, but it took him 10 years of additional waiting for God to give him the green light finally to go and officially begin his ministry to these Gentile nations. Isn't that remarkable? I mean, if you knew that you were called to a certain work, right, would you have the patience to wait that long? I don't think I could wait that long. 13, 14 years of waiting altogether? That's tough. As I was reflecting upon this passage, I remember, I remember what Pastor James shared last week, for those of you who were there, and he mentioned that, you know, both James and Shine, this missionary couple, I mean, they're hoping to be on the mission field soon, uh, but they're hoping to be on the mission field much, much earlier, right? Don't remember that, right? what they're sharing? But see, God had them endure through roughly 10 years of ministry here in the U.S., which included, by the way, some very, very difficult and character-shaping seasons. I mean, he didn't share everything on stage here last Sunday, but over lunch, and I, I know him a little bit, what he had to endure. His wife was very ill for some time, and it was incredibly difficult for both of them you know, for multiple years. And so they were sharing some of that. And he said, maybe next time he visits, uh, he'll, he'll give a different testimony, right? Uh, the story of how they had to endure together, right? In the midst of that kind of suffering and physical ailment. And so I said, yes, please do so. So expect them back in three, four years. Um, so think about that. that. That's how God tends to work in the lives of his people, and so before I move on to the next part of the message, let me just say this. If, if things aren't opening up for you right away, whatever the issue may be, maybe you're waiting for a job or maybe you're waiting for marriage. I don't know. I mean, I, I thought I was going to get married earlier in life. Really, I wanted to get married like at age 24, 25. You know, that's a great age to get married. But God had different plans. You know, um, I was married at age 31. I remember someone when I was in my 20s, an older guy told me as he was looking at me, you know, just doing life. He's like, I don't think 
you're ready for marriage, man. <laughs> I don't think you're ready for, I think, I think you need more work, you know. And that, that, that might be the case for some of you. Maybe you're waiting for some door to be open, you know. Um, but instead of being so discouraged and even despairing, you know, maybe you're to trust that God is using this season to further train and equip you for what's to come. Right? I think that would be a healthier perspective to have. Part two, the Barnabas effect. Besides God using time and the hardships of life, another major factor that God used to further grow Saul into the apostle he will later become is none other than good old Barnabas. Right, good old Barnabas. It says in verse 26, when Paul, sorry, I'm going back and forth, Saul, Paul, same guy. Again. When Saul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. So think about that dynamic. He's, he's attempting to go join the disciples in Jerusalem. Right? He already joined the disciples in Damascus, right? but there was no social media back then, so no one had any idea what was going on. You know, the distance was too great. He was active in Damascus. But people in Jerusalem had no idea, like this very little idea of, of what he truly was. He was still an unknown entity. They just heard this guy who used to persecute the church. And maybe he's dangerous still. And so they were all afraid of him. So Paul is moving toward them, wanting to be part of that group. But they're rejecting him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. They were skeptical, doubtful. But here's the thing, verse 27 is important. But Barnabas, here's the Barnabas effect. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. It's good old Barnabas. Yeah. He was a difference maker. For those of you who may, not, who may not know too much about Barnabas, his original name was Joseph. But because he had the gift of encouragement, he was given the nickname Barnabas, which means literally son of encouragement. What a great nickname to have. Yeah. People will never give me that nickname, you know. <laughs> you know why? Because Paul, hey, my parents named me Paul in hoping I guess I would be like the Apostle Paul and, and God, you know, heard their prayers. So Paul and Barnabas are very different people, very different, but they complemented each other very well. You know, Barnabas, yes, he was the guy who was always willing to give people the benefit of the doubt, right? He always wanted to give people a second chance. Paul, on the other hand, he was the more rigid, you know, theologian type who was a lot more cut and dry, you know. If he thought you were going to cause trouble, he would have no problem finding someone else to replace you. Compared to Paul, Barnabas was definitely more warm. Yeah, he was a relational type, okay? He, he grew more of an emotional attachment to people, and that was his strength. But it also got him in trouble at times, you know, because when you have a tendency to put people first, sometimes your judgment can get clouded and it can cause you to forget that your priority needs to always be putting God and his word first. So because of the differences they had between each other, 
I mean, they started off well, but their relationship uh, was actually very rocky at times. There was conflict. But I want to say this before I give you some examples. Although Paul and Barnabas didn't always get along very well, uh, they, they did sharpen each other as ministry partners. And they were ministry partners for a very long time. And you know what? The church was better for it. So let me share a couple of recorded instances where we're able to gain some very helpful insight into Paul and Barnabas's relationship, okay? And then I'm going to draw out some, some maybe one or two lessons we can learn from that, okay? First is in Acts. Uh, later it comes, we'll cover it uh, down the road. But in Acts chapter 13, 2, the Holy Spirit finally appoints Barnabas and Saul, who at, by that time he, he's referred more often uh, or frequently as the Apostle Paul, okay, or, or, or just Paul, uh, the Holy Spirit appoints them to be missionaries that go out from Antioch. So they, they get commissioned to go, finally, uh, to go on their first journey together. And Barnabas and, and Saul, they both decide to take a guy named John Mark uh, along as an assistant for them, okay? But unfortunately, something happens during the trip and John Mark, and we're not told what happened exactly, but he ends up abandoning this mission trip. He leaves the team. And so two or three years later, after this trip is over, you know, Paul wanted to go on another uh, journey with Barnabas to revisit some of the churches to strengthen them um, and to kind of to see how, just, I guess, to see how they're doing. But there was a clash because Barnabas wanted to take John Mark again. And, and Paul said, over my dead body. <laughs> they had a sharp disagreement. And he couldn't trust John Mark. How can I trust a guy who deserted us, right? And so, you know, Barnabas, as a son of encouragement, he wants to be patient with John Mark and give him another chance here. But Paul says no. And so these two great men of faith who have been very close ministry partners for at least 15 years by this point, they decide to part ways and continue on with different missionary partners. Barnabas chooses John Mark, his guy, and Paul chooses, you guys remember? Silas. Paul chooses Silas because Silas is probably more reliable. But here's what's interesting to me. On this particular issue, the Bible does not take sides. The Bible does not say Paul is right or Barnabas is right. The Bible is silent. It just says both of these men, they were commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and the churches they visited were strengthened, it says. Okay, and so we're not to judge whether one was right or wrong. Right? They, they were just different people. Right? They had a different opinion. They couldn't agree. That happened. That's life. But this was not a sort of right or wrong case. But the ministry continued. The gospel expanded because of these two men. One more example of Barnabas and Paul. It's found in Galatians chapter 2. Sometime before this separation happened between Barnabas and Paul, there, there, there was another serious conflict that that Paul records for us, okay? Um, P 
Peter, the other apostle, he'd come down to Antioch from Jerusalem, and he was hanging out and enjoying some table fellowship with other Gentile Christians, but this was a big no-no to some of the more legalistic folks within the Jewish party. They were called Judaizers during that time. They're highly legalistic, and, and they had a clear line that was drawn. You cannot, as Jewish people observing like strict kosher law, we cannot have fellowship with Gentile Christians at this point. And so once uh, Peter and Barnabas see the Judaizers come and, and speak out against what they're doing, they actually draw back and separate themselves from the Gentile Christians. And, and, and when Paul sees this, when, when Paul uh, observes what's happening, he, he doesn't hesitate to directly rebuke Peter and Barnabas in public. Like Barnabas would never do this. Like Barnabas would never directly rebuke someone in public, you know, but Paul does. He's got no problem doing that, right? Because in his mind, the gospel was at stake. The very gospel was being harmed here. And on this issue, it's different from the other issue. On this issue, the Bible makes it clear that Peter and Barnabas were actually in the wrong, right? No matter how well-intentioned they may have been. And I can, under, under, I can understand, I can sympathize with the Barnabas or Peter. I, I know such people, even in our church and denomination. They're, they're very relational, right? They, they don't want to burn bridges, any, any kind of bridges. And so they do their best to um, keep healthy ties with whoever they can, right? And, and in their minds, it's, it's strategy. It's so that you know, the gospel mission can go forth, right? They don't want their evangelism to be hampered, you know, by ill feelings. And so at times they will go out of their way, right? Even if it means like this kind of compromise. Right? And they'll, they'll sometimes fudge the truth or at least make the truth obscure in order not to, as not to offend other people, right? You know such people. They're all around us. And so I can sympathize with what Peter and Barnabas are doing, but the Bible makes it very clear that they were in the wrong. And so I think it's worth saying this. Son of encouragement types like Barnabas, they, they do need people like Paul who are more rigid theologian types. Okay, But I, I don't want to just stop there. I, I know the... <laughs> Opposite is also true, right? The Pauls of our, our time, and, you know, in, in this case, the Apostle Paul, like his type, the theologian types, let me say for lack of a better term, they also need the Barnabas types, right? The son of encouragement types, right? When, when the two can coexist and kind of balance each other out, that's when the church is at its best, Ask yourselves this. Why did Paul not get sucked into the hypocrisy while Barnabas did? I think that's an interesting question. To me, it's a no-brainer because I, I, I know how Paul thinks. Sometimes I feel like I'm the apostle himself. No, just kidding. No, scratch that. That's heresy. Um, but I, I kind of get it. You know, I, I can understand because to me, it's, it's very easy. It comes easily. Paul simply did not feel the same emotional empathy with the Jews who came from Jerusalem as Barnabas did. 
Uh, there's a lack of emotional empathy. Like, things are cut and dry. What's right is right. What's wrong is wrong. And I'm going to speak out what's right. I don't care if it hurts people's feelings. That's who Paul is. And because of that character trait, right, he was able to make a more clear-headed decision in what seemed to be a very difficult situation for Peter and Barnabas. So Paul was definitely not a, a natural encourager like Barnabas was, but see, God raised up someone like Paul to keep the gospel pure and to keep his churches doctrinally faithful, and that is very important. And so, you know, if you see someone who's just a little more rigid, uh, you know, maybe not as likable. See, Barnabas is very likable. I, I, I even heard many pastors preach from the pulpit, you know, if, if Paul were living today, I don't think I'd be friends with him, you know. Not, not very likable. But, see, he, he plays still a very important role in, in God's church and in God's kingdom. Um, imagine if our church has only had Barnabases. I have no doubt that more churches would fall into liberalism, failing to maintain a hard stance on anything. On the other hand, think about what would happen if our churches only had Paul types. I have no doubt that churches would, would lack the warmth and gracious spirit of Christ. You see? So you, you don't want either extremes. Right? God made the church with a, a diversity of people for a reason. Both sides are meant to learn from each other. Barnabas helped Paul greatly when Paul was in need. When everyone was rejecting Paul, Barnabas was the one by his side saying, come, I will take you to the apostles. I will defend your name. That was Barnabas. Barnabas was the one who we can say helped produce the greatest missionary and theologian of all time. And then many years later, it was Paul who helped Barnabas by showing him his error, keeping him aligned with the gospel. Right? That's how they helped each other. And in the end, God is the one who gets the glory because it's God who makes men who they are. What may this mean for us? Well, it means that we shouldn't loathe our differences. Right? We're to learn how to appreciate the diverse personalities and gifts that exist in the church. The church is able to grow more beautifully when we all learn to complement one another with our diverse personalities and spiritual gifts. Amen? Amen. Part three, the multiplying church. Even though the church was being persecuted during this time and its leaders were being threatened, it says, interestingly, that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. I want to emphasize that. The church had peace and was being built up, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied, we're told. The church multiplied in the midst of all that was happening. Now, This was actually the most difficult part of the sermon for me, to be honest. Uh, you might find that to be strange, but I just, I, 
I couldn't know how to take the church had peace. I wasn't sure how to take that. You know, when Luke wrote the church had peace, some believe that he could have been referring to the social or political peace that the church may have enjoyed for a brief season before persecution later intensified again, because there, the, there, was, there was an ebb and flow of persecution. You know, some seasons were a little better, some, some were not. It gets really bad uh, a couple decades down the road here with uh, certain Roman Caesars just lashing out uh, extremely violently toward Christians. So that's a possible interpretation. That is possible. But I think it would be more appropriate to interpret this a little differently, okay? And, and I've, I've come to believe that this is probably uh, a wiser approach to take. I, I want to interpret it this way. The church had peace, okay, not so much because things were peaceful around them, but because it was a peace of Christ that governed their hearts and minds from within them, right, in spite of all the chaos that was going around them. Does that make sense? It wasn't so much the social peace that Luke, Luke was referring to, but it's the inner peace of Christ that characterized who they were as believers. And I think that that's a better way to read this passage because Luke, in the same passage, emphasizes the fact that the church multiplied as it walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And that's important because if you're living in ancient Rome, you were expected to walk in the fear of Caesar and in the comfort of Rome and what it could offer you. You know, the, the, the famous saying, like, Pax Romana is a well-known thing. You know, it, it, it spanned 200 plus years. Roman peace was being sold. So was that the kind of peace that the Christians were banking on here? Is that what it means when it says the church had peace? That they were getting a taste of the Pax Romana? I doubt it. Because in contrast to that way of life, Christians, they were called to pursue a different kind of peace. Paul later writes about it in his letter to the Philippians. He writes, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and, and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, not the peace of Rome, okay? not social peace, not cultural peace, not political peace, but the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And it's a peace that surpasses all human understanding because it's a peace that remains no matter how disruptive our lives become, you see. That's not normal. What's normal is that when there's disruption around us, we lose peace. That's what's normal to human beings. You know, when people are trying to, to kill us, we become anxious. That's normal. What's not normal is a peace that remains no matter how disruptive life is. That's why it's a peace that surpasses all understanding. The peace that is offered to us in Christ is a peace 
that enabled the early Christians to endure through all sorts of unimaginable trials and sufferings. And this peace also, it, it ought to allow us, brothers and sisters, to remain firmly anchored in the Lord no matter how chaotic our lives seem to be at times in this day and age. For many of us, I know, even for myself, life remains very stressful. And as our brother Sam prayed earlier, there's good reason to be concerned about the direction of our country. So I'm not saying that we ought to act like Buddhist monks and just disengage ourselves from the world around us and pursue that kind of artificial peace. That's not the kind of peace we practice as believers. The peace we enjoy is, first of all, a peace that flows from the knowledge that we have made peace with God through his Son. That we were once God's enemies because of our sins, but we have now been made friends because our sins have finally been paid for through the blood of Jesus. And because God is now on our side There is nothing in this world we need to fear anymore. That's where this peace comes from, right? That kind of conviction, that kind of commitment to a God-centered reality. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. If you believe that, you will have peace And you will become unshakable. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? If you believe nothing will, you will have peace. Shall tribulation? Shall distress? Shall persecution? Shall famine? Nakedness? It's that kind of confidence in the Lord, brothers, sisters, that we are called to live with. And as our hearts and minds are governed by the peace Jesus offers us, that's when we can continue to grow and multiply as believers. It happened back in Paul's day, and it can continue to happen now by the power of God's Spirit that works in us and through us. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for leaving us the examples of Saul and Barnabas because through them we learn more of your grace and mercy. Saul was someone who committed unimaginable crimes and acts of injustice, and yet you shined your light upon him and transformed him into one of your most faithful servants. And Barnabas could have easily rejected Saul on the basis of good reason and common sense, but he chose to risk his own safety for the sake of extending grace to an undeserving sinner. And such faithfulness is only possible when your people find peace, not in this world, but in Christ. Your church is built up when your people fear the Lord and not man, and when your people find comfort in your spirit rather than in the things of this world. So help us, Lord, to find peace in Christ, to find comfort in your spirit as we think upon you today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together.